Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Genesis chapter 14, verses 11 through 20. It can be found on page 10 in your pew Bibles or page 20 of the large print pew Bibles. It's Genesis chapter 14, verses 11 through 20. And before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made, and we thank you for all that you have given to us. God, we thank you for providing what we need. We thank you for the Bible that we have to read in our own language, that we can that we can know what it is that you are revealing to us about who you are, who we are, that we would not only know the depths of the, um, of the problem of turning away from you, but that we would also know the depths of your love that you have for us and what you have done in Jesus to bring us back to you. We pray that you would give us attentive uh, minds this morning. You would give us ears that are ready to listen. That you would give us minds that are ready to think God, that you would give us hearts that are ready to be changed by your word and by your spirit, that we would evermore be made into the people that you have created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. In Genesis chapter 14, we're going to start with verse 11, and if you're looking in your Bible, you'll see that is not the beginning of a paragraph. The beginning of the paragraph has a lot of words I'm not even going to try to pronounce. You can read those if you like. But the basic uh, setup is there are many kings fighting against many other kings. You have four kings fighting against five kings, and you can read who those are, where they're from, and how that battle went. But then, picking up in verse 11, the four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew, Lot, and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Turning then to our gospel lesson for today, John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36, which can be found on page 862 in your pew Bibles, or 1651 of the large print. John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. 
We're looking at John the Baptist and his relationship uh, to Jesus. Starting in verse 22 of John chapter 3, it says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also, also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and the people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the manner of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it and has, has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives, his spirit, gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on them. We are continuing our series uh, through the book of Hebrews that we've entitled Jesus Above All. And you just saw in, uh, in the book of John where John the Baptist, not the same John as the one who wrote it, uh, John the Baptist talks about Jesus being above all because of who he is and where he comes from. And we have looked so far in the book of Hebrews at how Jesus is greater than the angels, how he's greater than Moses. And we see all sorts of ways in which the author is saying, you have all these other things, and you have Jesus, and in case you are tempted to say, we will take all the rest and just leave Jesus, leave Jesus aside, turn away from him and just go back to everything else, don't do it. Because if you have everything except Jesus... You have nothing. But the people that this author is writing to were Jewish Christians. People who had been raised in Jewish families. They had grown up with the Jewish traditions and the Old Testament. They knew about the temple and the sacrifices and the priests. This is their way that they had of coming to God. And so when the pressure comes on, when they have accepted Jesus and said, okay, maybe he is the one that God has sent to be our Savior, to be the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. And they accept that as good news, but then times start getting hard. Jesus, you know, told the parable of the four soils, and he said there will be some people who are like the seed that falls on the rocky soil, and they'll grow up quickly, but there's no root. There's not much soil there. And so when... Uh, when the sun comes up, 
in the heat of the day, the plant withers. It doesn't have enough root to sustain it, and it's gone, and it never bears any fruit. And he said, that's what it'll be like for those who receive the message with great joy. They say, yes, Jesus is the answer. (laughs) But then, because of the name of Jesus being identified with him, they start facing trouble. They start facing hard times. They start facing persecution. And so they fall away and say, "Ah, I'll leave the Jesus thing alone. And they never bear fruit. Their lives are not changed. And they go back to exactly what they've been before. Maybe even worse. And so the author of the Hebrews is saying, this is what you're in danger of if you turn away from Jesus just because times are getting hard. So let me explain why he should be held on to at all costs. And so they've gone through several things of why they should be held on to. And what we talked about last week was there was a, a temple curtain separated the people from the Holy of Holies in the temple of God. And before we even go any farther with that, we have to pause to just think about this for a second. If we have the wrong view of God, how can we expect to have a right perspective on the world he's created, on our lives that he's created, and how we are to live as created people in this created world. If we have the wrong view of who God is, how can we even know who we are? And you'll see this a lot. People who have rejected any view of God whatsoever say, no, we don't even want to go there. And they spend all kinds of time trying to figure out, okay, then who are we? Apart from a correct understanding of who God is, how can we understand who we are? How can we understand how we can relate to each other or to our creator. And when we look all the way back to Genesis, in the very beginning, the Garden of Eden, you remember Adam and Eve had to leave the garden? Because they had turned away from God. He had said, this is how you are to live, as my people. And they said, maybe we'll go a different way. And so they had to go away from God. Away from having that same sort of fellowship, that same kind of relationship they'd had before. Or they would have had, had they been people who were wanting to live with him. Then later, we see the same kind of thing set up all throughout the Old Testament in a kind of pictorial form. The temple itself is designed in such a way that there are various layers or levels to the temple. And so in the very center you have the Holy of Holies. This is where the presence of God is most present. And certain classes of people can only get so close. And the closer you get to God, the fewer people can go there. Until finally you get to the Holy of Holies itself and only one person can go there and only once a year. And it's only the high priest. He can go there on the Day of Atonement. That's it. And only after offering sacrifices can he go past the curtain once a year that's it and so we said last week how even though there is this separation between God and people because of God's holiness his perfectness and our imperfection our putting ourselves above him getting things all out of order 
turning away from who he is and what his uh, will is for our lives that he has created. There is this huge separation. If we think that the separation is not that big, think, well, yeah, I messed up a little bit. I'm sure all I have to do is work a little bit harder and I'll be right with him again. We have not understood how great God is, nor have we understood the depths of our sin. We had an especially long prayer of confession today because hopefully we were all able to identify with the things that we were saying in there. And maybe if we're not used to facing up to our sin on any sort of regular basis, it can be easy to go along and think, I'm not that bad. I'm pretty much just the same as everybody around me. But we're not compared to the people around us. We're compared to someone who's actually perfect. And when we read uh, things like that prayer of confession, kind of have the big gulp after each sentence. (laughs) Yep, that's me too. That's the bad news. But, until we understand how bad the bad news is, the good news doesn't seem like good news. But if we understand how great God is, and how not great we are, and how far that separation is, then we understand that, you know, even like it's been said before, the uh, trying to compare a pole vaulter to an astronaut, right? An astronaut can land on the moon. A pole vaulter, even the best pole vaulter in the world, is not going to be able to pole vault themselves to the moon. That distance can't be overcome that way. If we understand the distance there is between ourselves and God, we understand there's something else we need, and all of our efforts of jumping and manufacturing poles to fling ourselves a little bit higher than our neighbor still gets us nowhere close to actually being in the presence of God. But that's what the whole book of Hebrews has been about. That's what the whole Bible is about, is that God knows we can't do anything, and he has come to us in the person of Jesus to do it for us. The people hearing this message, though, people, uh, you know, we'd said last week that when Jesus died on the cross, the temple curtain was torn in two, making a way through Jesus to the very presence of God. The people hearing this message could have very easily said, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. Jesus can't be the high priest because we know where the high priest comes from. The high priest has always been. If if we're going to follow the law that God has laid down in the Old Testament, we know that the priest always has to be descended from the same tribe. It's got to be one of Aaron's descendants. It's got to come through uh, the tribe of Levi. That's where it's got to come from. And in fact, they kept very strict records of family line so that they would know if you were qualified to be a priest or not. When they came back after the people had been sent away into exile in, uh, in Babylon, they came back and in Nehemiah it talks about how there were some people who searched and searched. They couldn't find their family uh, records and so they were disqualified from being priests. They couldn't prove that they were actually of the right line. Sorry, too bad. Well, here's the problem. Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. So it could have been really easy for people to say, you keep saying he's the priest, he's the one that provides access for us to God. I don't see it. I, I don't get it. How, I, how could that be? 
Maybe we'll just go back to the priests that God has established in the law. Maybe we'll just go back to the temple and continue offering the sacrifices. But no. Do I have any time left now to talk about the passage of the day? We'll see. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 19. Chapter 6 had ended by saying that Jesus had entered entered the inner sanctuary on our behalf and that he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In the order of Melchizedek. We read about him in Genesis earlier uh, this morning. The, The place that Melchizedek is talked about the most in all of the Bible is what we're getting ready to read right now. Not even what it was in in Genesis. He's mentioned in Genesis, one other place, in Psalm 110, which he will quote here in Hebrews. And then, that's pretty much it for the whole of the Old Testament. And yet here's where the author goes by way of making the argument that Jesus is not only still able to be a priest, but he's above all the other priests that have come before. And here's how he says it. So this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, Melchizedek that is, this man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. That's an interesting argument, isn't it? Verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, And indeed, the law given to the people established that priesthood. Why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, for it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Here's here's the problem I have with this passage. 
The problem I have with this passage is we hear a lot of old names and old terms and we start to think it has nothing to do with us. And we hear about this priest system that was set up and who cares? That's the problem I have with it. But I found the more that I look at it, the more I see how much it has to do with exactly who we are and where we are. So let me have you hang with me for a second as we go through kind of the argument he's laying out. And I promise I'll explain how this has to do with us by the time we finish. Here's the way that the argument goes. We might be tempted to think that this is a whole passage about Melchizedek. But it's not. It's a whole passage about Jesus. Melchizedek. I just want to keep saying that name because it's fun to say. I actually saw in several commentaries about this passage where they refer to the Melchizedekian priesthood, which I think that word is pretty much only good for Scrabble. I don't know if you can use it there, but I think it's an adjective, so go for it. Melchizedekian. Fun. Anyway. But this guy is only mentioned in the Old Testament where we already read about him in Genesis very briefly. And then in a psalm of David, Psalm 110, where it says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And our temptation might be if we do get really interested in this sort of thing and say, who is this guy? What is this about? Start going and trying to find out more and more and more about Melchizedek. And if we do that, we're actually missing the point of the passage, which is not find out more and more about Melchizedek. It's find out more and more about Jesus. And the only reason that he mentions Melchizedek is precisely because so little is mentioned about him in the Bible. And it makes this argument that, you know, we think the priest always has to come from the line of Levi. But Levi was one of the descendants of Abraham. And if you only can go through Levi, you can only go back so far. You can only trace that back so far. But when you think that Abraham was even greater than, he, than Levi was, and that Abraham was giving a tenth of everything to this Melchizedek guy, Melchizedek was not in the line of Levi, and yet here he is being represented as greater than Abraham. Abraham gives him a tenth of everything, and he's the one who blesses Abraham. And it says, and Abraham is the one who had received the promises from God. God had looked down at everybody in the world and had picked Abraham to bless, and through whom to bless the whole world. And yet, even Abraham, who had all these great promises about the nations that would come from him and the land that God was going to give him and be a blessing to the world... He's not the one blessing this other guy. It's the other guy blessing him. Melchizedek is the one blessing him. And so the author here is saying, Melchizedek must have been somehow greater than even Abraham. And so, rather than having to come from the tribe of Levi, maybe there's something that's above that. And so he then draws some... uh, draw some parallels between Jesus and what we see in Melchizedek. For example, he says, you know, here are some of the only things we know about this guy. One, 
His name is Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. And another, he was the king of Salem, which means king of peace. And as we look at Jesus, what is he but the one who, is, who rules in righteousness and in peace? So, so there's one connection. Here's another. He's not listed as having father or mother or any genealogy, beginning of days or end of life. And in, this ways, in these ways, Melchizedek actually resembles the Son of God. Not that Melchizedek actually was living forever and was a priest forever. But that he's not introduced as, oh, and by the way, he gets to be a priest because of who his father was. It's not that. He's just said, it's just, that's who he is. He's just a priest of the Most High God. And he says, in this way, there is a priesthood that doesn't need to come from that sort of line, but one that can be above it. And so in this way, even Melchizedek resembles the Son of God, who does remain a priest forever. And then it gets into this. In verse 11, it says, If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, why was there still need for another to come? Why was there still a need for another to come? And the answer is that it couldn't be attained. That even if you followed the law exactly as it related to the temple and the priests and the offering of sacrifices... As it says in verse 19, yeah, the law made nothing perfect. Even if you followed everything exactly, you still were not made perfect. This is basically what the law did. It didn't make anybody perfect. It just showed us that we were not perfect. The law showed us that we were not perfect, but it didn't make anyone, it didn't make anything perfect. And so it had to be changed. The priesthood had to be changed. Not just the individual priest, but the whole system had to be changed. Because it was weak and it was useless for making people perfect. And it is only in perfection that we can be in the presence of a perfect God. And so it says, even though Jesus came from a different tribe, didn't come from the tribe that was prescribed by the law. He is the high priest over everything. Because he has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Think about that. The power of an indestructible life. Jesus, who died just as everybody else dies but didn't stay dead, didn't stay dead. He couldn't, death could not hold him. He was, had an indestructible life, one that would go on forever. And because of that, we see one who is a high priest even over the whole system from before. Does that mean the whole system that had gone before wasn't worth anything? That was kind of like what we talked about with John the Baptist earlier. All of it was meant to point to Jesus. All of it was meant to point to Jesus, the one who was the high priest, the one who would be the go-between between us and God, a sinful people and a holy God. And this is where it has to do with us. 
Verses 18 and 19, it says, The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. If we understand the holiness of God, if we understand the sinfulness of our own hearts, if we understand the incredible separation that there is there, and that there can be no life, no real life, Apart from God, we understand the problem we have and the need for a solution that we can't provide. And like I said, even with the following of the temple regulations, we still don't get there. We're just pointing towards something that God will provide. But he says that's been set aside now because what was pointing to has now come. And what it was pointing to was Jesus. And Jesus is the one who is mentioned as that better hope. The better hope by which we draw near to God. Here's the good news. Not only has God made a way for us to come into his presence, not only has he made that possible that we can come to him in our times of need, in our times of joy, in our times that are not even our times, that are his times, all of it, And we can come to him all the time. But that we don't have to go through any other human priests. When you have a need, you don't have to go to a pastor. You don't have to go to a priest. You don't have to go to anybody else and say, I need you to talk to God for me because you're closer to him than I am. Nope, not anymore. That was the old system where the closer, farther into the temple you went, you had people who could get closer and closer to God. Not anymore. Now we all have a better hope, and that is this, that we all have direct access to Jesus. Now. Direct access to Jesus. And that he leads us directly into the presence of God the Father. So that all of us, through Jesus, have direct access to God. We don't have people who are, well, you're closer to God than I am, and I'm farther away than you are. At any point, at any time, we turn to Jesus, we trust in Jesus, we have access to God the Father. This, like I say, if we understand the separation, should almost blow our minds with joy. That we have the possibility not only of life, but of life with our Creator. The one who knows us best, the one who loves us best, the one who is willing to go to great lengths to bring us back to Him. The one who gives life itself. It is through Jesus that we find God. It is through God that we find life. This is why John the Baptist was even saying earlier, that he who believes, get it right here, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. The Hebrews had found an excuse, a way to look at Jesus and say, yeah, but I don't know, he's not from the right family. We all have excuses. 
But if Jesus is the way to real life, we need to look at those excuses honestly. We need to see them for what they are and realize that Jesus is our only hope. But he's a better hope than anything else we could hope in. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.